The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Hello, good morning, everybody. Out of Luke chapter 23, verses 26 to 49. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of God. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. Uh, We are so thankful to remember, Lord, what Jesus has done for us. And I pray that um, as we now take this special time to look again at the cross, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here and do what you love to do, which is just shine the spotlight on Jesus and what he's done. Lord, um, I pray that each one of us would see the cross in a new way. Some of us maybe for the first time, uh, some of us just... A, a new refreshing, but Lord, help us see what you've done and give you the praise with all our lives that you deserve. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said before, uh, today we're looking at the events of the cross. And I think the core statement of the passage today is what Jesus says in Luke 23, verse 34. 
really one of the most astounding statements that has ever been spoken in the history of the world. Luke 23, 34, Father, what? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's amazing, isn't it? But notice the double meaning. In one sense, don't the soldiers know what they're doing? What are they doing? They're crucifying someone. Is this their first time? No, they've done this a million times. They know exactly what they're doing. It's grisly work. They're professionals. They're crucifying someone. They know what's happening. But in another sense, they don't see it at all. They have no idea what is going on. They don't know what they're doing in the sense that they don't know who this is. And they don't know what he's accomplishing. So think about this incredible prayer. I mean, we're moved by, first of all, Jesus' prayer that he would act, that the Father would forgive those driving the spikes into his wrists. That blows us away. But more than that, he prays that they would see what's happening so that they can know forgiveness. And just, it, it lands us right here. You can see the cross without seeing it. I mean, I don't think for any of you it's a surprise that Jesus died on the cross. We, we probably all remember that or know that. He dies. But the question for Luke is, but do you see it? Do you really see what's happening there to the point that it's melted you? It has changed you. It has reordered your priorities, what you love, your uh, interactions with others. It, it dominates you now. Can you see the cross? So in our passage today, we get to watch these people see but not see, not really understand what's going on. And then amazingly, Jesus' prayer right here, let them see, begins to be answered on the very moment of his death. Some will see. And so I know it's what God wants to do with this text, is that we would see. Can you see? Do you really see what's there? And has it changed you? So let's remember the background. We've seen Jesus be betrayed and arrested by a mob the middle of Thursday night, endured a series of uh, trials all night Thursday into Friday morning. Uh, though Pilate repeatedly declared his innocence, he, gave, he, he feared the crowd, right? And he gave Jesus over to be crucified. And so now as we jumped into the story, Jesus is carrying probably the cross beam that's going to be nailed to that larger piece of wood. And it's the idea of you just, you shame somebody, right? We've condemned them, now we're going to make them walk through the streets. So let's jump in. Three things to see at the cross. And here's number one. We're going to start in verse 26. As they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it, from, to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of the women who were mourning and lamenting for him. So as Luke sets up the scene, uh, what do the Roman soldiers have to do with this cross beam that Jesus is carrying? they got to give it to somebody else. And the text doesn't really tell us why, although it's not that hard to imagine, at least from a human perspective. Um, how are you feeling after being beaten up by mobs on two different times? Uh, temple guard, Roman soldiers. Then we know from the Gospels that he was flogged. And you remember that? They call that cat of nine tails whip. 
with the bone and the glass and the stones at the end of it, and they would lash that thing onto the person's back, and it would stick, and they would yank. And it would literally pull your whole back off. A lot of people died from that alone. And so now it's, they give him the crossbeam, and they make him walk through the city. And what does that, what does that look like? Um, and so you just imagine maybe he's just, he's not keeping up at the pace they want or something. He's not able to carry it. And so you get introduced to these random characters. There's a lot of characters in this story. The first one you get is Simon of Cyrene. That's important because Cyrene's kind of North Africa, Libya, maybe. And um, so he hasn't been a part of the mob that said, crucify him, crucify him. He's just, he's here to worship for the Passover. And if you're him, I don't know, you, you made this big trip, you were excited to worship God at Passover, and then you see this, horrid, terrifying mob crowd parade going through the street and you come closer for another look and there's this man who's just mangled beyond belief and maybe he stumbles and falls and the Roman soldier looks at you and says, carry that for him. And uh, this is not modern America where you can be like, I'm calling my lawyer, okay? This is, you best carry it or it will become yours. And so he's carrying this cross beam for Jesus and there's this massive crowd of people following him from Pilate's headquarters down the street and there's this group of women women mourning and lamenting can you get a taste uh, can you can you smell the air it's dark it's bitter it's it's horrid you know it's interesting Luke loves to point out how Jesus validated women and how so many women were quick to want to love and follow Jesus. And here you have women who seem to be just full of sympathy for him. They've watched his trial from a distance and they're crushed by what has befallen him. And now they're just, they're grieving this process even as it is happening. But I want you now to see what Jesus says to them because it's not what you would expect. Verse 28. Turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Why are they weeping for him? I think it's deep sympathy. I mean, couldn't you watch a certain new show and weep for what you see? Deep sympathy. Moreover, if one of your friends is, is suffering or someone you respect, deep sympathy, weeping for them. I can't believe they're having to go through this. And Jesus is kind. He's respectful. Daughters of Jerusalem. He's not rejecting it, but he is very clearly saying, you don't see. You don't see. Jesus is saying right away, I'm not a victim worthy of your sympathy. That is not what is happening here. Don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. Why? Why? You see, there's this thing with sympathy. They're, they're hurting for him, but they don't think that's going to happen to them. They're hurting for what he's going through. He doesn't deserve it. But they're not thinking it has that much to do with them other than making them sad. And Jesus says, this has everything to do with all of you. And if you really saw what was happening here, you'd be grieving for yourself. Why? Anyone confused? Look at what he says next. 
Verse 29, behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. What? You know, that would be the ultimate nightmare for a first century Jewish woman. Your whole identity is to have lots of kids, especially sons. You're, you're, the people are growing. Um, and so to be barren is like, in first century Jew, it's like the ultimate pain. The ultimate pain. And Jesus says something is coming to where this ultimate nightmare, you, you, will, you will wish it was true of you. What could that possibly be? we got to back up a little bit to understand some of what he's saying. Look at Luke 21. Luke 21, verses 20 to 23. There Jesus says, But when you see Jerusalem, what? Surrounded by armies, you know its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of what? Vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Verse 23, alas for women who are pregnant. And those who are nursing infants in those days. You see the connection? It would have been better if you didn't have babies right now. For there will be great distress upon the earth. And key word. And what? Wrath against his people. What is Jesus saying? What is he anticipating? What is he predicting? What is going to come upon Jerusalem due to their rejection of him? Wrath. Judgment day. So, back up. They're feeling sympathy for him. We're so sorry that this is happening to you. And he seems to say, thanks, but you're kind of missing the point. You should be weeping for yourself. And as we look into what he means, why should they be weeping for themselves? Wrath is coming. God's wrath is coming. And you know, uh, his words came precisely true 70 AD. Uh, the Romans ransacked Jerusalem, and it was one of the worst scenes ever. Judgment is coming. But there's more to it than this, that first century judgment. Did you see the part, you remember the part in Jesus' words where he says, people will say, um, fall on us, mountains, then to the hills, cover us. Did you catch that part? By the way, how bad does it have to be for you to wish you were in an avalanche? Isn't that like on the top 10 phobia list or something? Uh, you're going skiing and hey, and then, oh, you fall in avalanche. And now you're in there by yourself, you know, slowly crushed. And you think, boy, I'd rather die in nearly any way other than that. And Jesus is very starkly saying, this is from Hosea chapter 10, verse 8, Old Testament, God's wrath on idolatrous Israel. It's about God's wrath in general. Look at Revelation 6, 16. What are people going to say at final judgment? What do they say to the hills? Fall on us and hide us from who? The face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Isn't that ironic? You know, I think I've said before, there's not a lot of sports teams named the Lambs, right? (laughs) We're going to crush you because we're the Lambs, okay? And yet in this verse, people are saying, I'd rather the mountain crush me than face the lamb. Why is Jesus called the lamb? He's the sacrifice for sins. 
That's what he does at first judgment here at the cross. What's he going to do when he comes back? Wrath. Judgment day. You begin to see now what he's saying to the crowds. Do you really see what's happening at the cross? The world is, is happy to be full of sympathy for this nice, kind man who just sadly is dying on a cross. And Jesus is saying, if that's all you see, that a, that a nice man is a victim and is dying on a cross, if that's all you see, you don't see the cross. In fact, if you're just weeping because it's a sad story that a nice guy got crucified, you don't see it at all. You need to weep for yourself. And why should you weep for yourself? Because judgment day is coming. I'm just amazed. That's a heck of a sermon for a guy to preach after he gets his back ripped off when he can't carry his crossbeam. How serious is Jesus about this? How loving is he about this? Where even in his deep pain, he's thinking of others. Could it be true that there's going to be a judgment day? Are people going to face the wrath of God? Are, are you going to stand before Jesus Christ on judgment day? And do you deserve his wrath? Think of all the reasons you want to think that you don't, because I'm in there with you. And then realize how ridiculous those are. You know, if you look at yourself before God and his law, like, have you always loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Have you always loved your neighbor as yourself? Have you ever been really mad at someone for what they did to you, and then you turned around and you did the very same thing over and over again? Have we not all been horrible hypocrites? Is not our game, gamesmanship about how good we are, isn't that just kind of a fraud? Can we be honest? Like, if, if it's just me and God, I deserve his judgment. Okay, second part of this point. Jesus has said, you don't see the cross clearly because you don't realize wrath is coming. And yet, what is he carrying up this hill? A cross. What is he willingly going to? The cross. And so you're made to kind of wonder, how does his cross help us with this impending judgment coming? I hope you know the answer, right? And we can kind of see it in the storyline here. Take a few minutes with you on this. What was that guy's name carrying the cross? Simon of Cyrene. Really interesting. You know, if the Gospels were myths, uh, historians say you don't get this kind of details in there. Because if you're just reading along, you're like, who, Simon? So, you know? But then for Luke, writing so early, why, why does he write Simon of Cyrene? Well, a guess is Lisa's. Uh, some of you have heard of him. Look at what Mark says about Simon. Mark was written before Luke, really early, to a Roman audience. Mark 15, 21, so interesting. Look at what Mark says. And they compelled a passerby, who? Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. And then what does he say about him next? The father of Alexander and Rufus. Well, why do you drop that on us? The best guess is because people in Mark's audience have heard of Alexander and Rufus. He's a part of the church community. Now let me blow your mind a little bit. We also have letters from Paul to the church in Rome. 
And at the end of Paul's letters, he gives you one of those chapters where for some of us it's frustrating, right? And if you try to get through Romans 16, and it's a list of like 47 names, and you're like, I don't know what to do with these names. Why should I care about these names? Well, uh, just, just add it all up. Simon of Cyrene, right? Uh, Mark wrote to a Roman audience, and Simon had two boys. What are their names? Alexander and Rufus. And so maybe Mark's writing to a Roman audience, Simon of Cyrene, Alexander and Rufus. Romans 16, 13. Look what Paul says. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. You can't prove it. You can't prove it. But it's not ridiculous to think, as you add all this up, that the reason we know this account in such great detail, it's not because the apostles were there. It's because Simon told this story, and his boys were part of the church community, and his wife was like a mother to the Apostle Paul. Which means it's quite plausible to believe that Simon carrying the crossbeam woke up one day to realize that he was carrying the very cross that saved him. And so in this picture you have Jesus saying with his words, don't just give me sympathy. This is about bigger things than that. You should weep for yourself because judgment day is coming. And yet with the story of Simon, you also see already into what the cross is going to do. How do you know you're going to be okay when judgment day comes? What is your answer to that? And I hope it's this. Jesus took my judgment for me. The way out from ultimate judgment day is trusting in this first Judgment Day, where Jesus took your place. Jesus took your place. That's the first thing to see at the cross. The cross is your hope for escaping final judgment. Can you see it? Do you hope in it? Do you trust in it? Do you look to it? That's how we escape judgment. Second thing to see about the cross in verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. By the way, criminals, they weren't just stealing candy bars, right, to get crucified. Um, these are bad guys, probably some, some murder, probably some uh, large-scale crimes. They were led away to be put to death with him, and they came to the place that's called the Skull. Why are we singing songs with Calvary in it? Calvary is the Latin name for this hill, the Skull, Golgotha, where they crucified him. So Jesus is crucified with the vile criminals. And you know, the Gospels are so understated. You don't get any gory details, do you? It just said Jesus was crucified. And it just leaves us there to ponder. Um, spikes through the wrist and through the feet. And your open back against that nasty log. And it takes forever to die when you're crucified. Because all your organs are still in place, the problem is you have to pull yourself up to get a breath on spikes through your wrists and your feet, rubbing that back along that log to breathe. And the reason I bring that up is 
is not just to be shocking, but it's so you'll be shocked by the next words. Verse 34, Jesus said, Father, what? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. I mean, you can imagine the Roman soldier's knees on his arm while they pound the railroad spike through his wrist. And you imagine that soldier and the, the uh, nice things people have said about him before. This is one of those jobs where I guess you have to have thick skin. You have to have a hard heart, really, to do this kind of horrible work. And what have people said to this soldier before when he nails them to pieces of wood? We can only imagine. Do you think he looked up at all when he heard, forgive them? Do you think he's ever heard anything like that before in his life? I mean, how many of you are still struggling with forgiving people who have done far less to you than crucifying you? I just don't know if I can do it. And Jesus says, forgive them right now in the middle of it as it's occurring. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And so he's praying that they'll be forgiven, but he's also praying that they will what? See. And now you get this juxtaposition in this next section where some people, most people don't see at all, but some people start to see. So let's start with the people who don't see. Um, the religious leaders mock him, verses 35. Or verse 35. Uh, the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. You know, they didn't even talk to him, right? They're talking to the crowds about him. And, and how, how horrid do you have to be to make fun of someone while they're being crucified? It, just, it, goes, beyond, it goes beyond what we could consider. But they hate him so much, and they're bringing up his claims, right? Who did he claim to be? The Messiah. So it's like, hey, man, if you ever wanted to prove it, now's the time. Hop off the cross. Show us that you're king. Prove it to us. Can you save yourself? If you can't save yourself, why should we think you're going to save anybody else? So they mock him on the cross. The soldiers mock, too. The, the religious leaders are mocking theologically. The soldiers are just mocking politically. That's what they've heard and known. So they, their joke is sour wine. I mean, what would you want to give a real king as he sits on his throne? Bring me a goblet of wine. What do you give this fake, failed king as he hangs on wood? Two-buck chuck for you. or Sour wine, leftovers. Ah, oh, you're the king. They're making fun of him. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself, repeating what the others are saying. Then not only that, verse 39, who else is making fun of him? The criminal hanging there. He just repeats what the crowd is saying. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Uh, Tim Keller says, this is the prayer everybody prays at some point, even the atheist. And here's what he means, and maybe you can think of it. Have you, can you remember a time, maybe even before you were a Christian, where everything went wrong, or you're in the doctor's office, or you got caught with something, and you, you, you breathed out something like, God, if you're there, save me from this, and I'll follow you. You ever done that? I did it once. I, I did it once, and if you want to hear the story, I'm not going to say it now because it would be on the internet. <laughs> I'll tell it to you later. But people make these prayers all the time. Even, even the most hardened, skept, hardened skeptic, when, when times are, are tough, when the circumstance is terrible, it's like, God, if you're really there, 
Show me that you're God by getting me out of this. And then, true story, a lot of people like that will end up rejecting Christianity because God did not come through for them in that way as they prayed. I was hurting and you did not hear me, so I'm done with you. Amazing, that's the prayer of this thief. Hey, I'll believe you're the Christ if what? If you climb off the cross and you get me off too, then I'll believe. So this first group of people, they see Jesus as a failed mock king, right? A failed mock king. They mock him. They make fun of him. (laughs) Enough of you. But there's another angle of sight to see as well. Let me just read to you a little bit from Psalm 22, written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, about what his son, the son of God, would endure on the cross. Look at Psalm 22, 7. All who see me do what? Mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. What was it like for Jesus to read this psalm when he went to church? It's going to be me. Psalm 22, verse 16. Look at this. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have what? Pierced my hands and feet. You realize this is hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented? pierced my hands and feet not only that I can count all my bones they stare and gloat over me what do they do verse 18 they divide my garments among them for my clothing they cast lots did you hear it as the scripture was read what did the soldiers do underneath the cross with Jesus stuff they gambled for it so the crowd see this failed mock mock fake king and yet you you get these details and you have an ear for prophecy from hundreds of years ago, and you think maybe there's more going on? Maybe this is all according to plan? Or another view, another angle. How does Jesus pray? What does he say before he wants people to be forgiven? What was that word? Father. Does Jesus have any doubt of who he is on the cross? Does he know who he is? Who is he? It's the Son of God. And now you see the irony. What, what were they saying to them as they, as they mocked him? If you are the son of God, what? Save yourself. And now you realize. It's not that he can't save himself. And therefore is not the son of God. It's that he won't save himself and therefore is truly the Son of God. He could have saved himself. And that thief said, if you're the Son of God, save yourself and then save me. And Jesus would say to him, the way I can save you is by me not saving myself. Because I'm paying what you deserve. I'm paying the price for what you deserve. And so Jesus has prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let them see, and now you begin to see the answer to that prayer. What does the other thief say in verse 40? The other thief rebuked him, rebuked the first thief. 
Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. This man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is amazing. This is one of the greatest examples of faith the world will ever see. The world will ever see. When you heard the gospel, I could tell you, hey, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And, and we can have this whole history of Christian faith and the whole New Testament scriptures. We give you this big foundation for what you could believe in. And what does the thief on the cross have out of all that? He's got nearly nothing. Uh, if you put all the gospels together, he was cursing Jesus at first at well, as first, as well at first. He was cursing, but something changed. And maybe it was just as he saw the way Jesus died and what he said. But more, maybe it's because Jesus prayed for him. And then, do you see the contrast between the first thief and the second? The first thief is entitled, hey, get me off the cross. I don't deserve this. The, the, the first thief is making demands. I'll believe in you if you'll do what I want. And the second thief is totally different. What does he say about his own sin? I deserve this. He's awake to the reality of his own sin. I deserve this, but you, you're innocent. And then verse 42, so beautiful. Jesus, what does he pray for? Does he pray, get me off the cross? No. His core desire is different. What does he pray? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. What does he believe about Jesus? This is the king who reigns. What does he believe about himself? I'm an undeserving sinner. But what does he also trust about Jesus? He shows grace to undeserving sinners. He can see. And then Jesus, what does he say to him? You guys know this. Truly I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. That would have been nice to hang on to as you're hanging on the cross. Just a little bit more. What do you see about Jesus here? Can you see? On one side, you got the crowds and kind of this self-righteous mockery. You don't come through for us. You're not who you say you are. We don't want you. And then you see Jesus' mercy in that prayer, and people start to wake up. First, it's a thief who sees his own sin, the, the true kingship of Jesus, and then a relying on his mercy. And is Jesus happy to receive him? Hey, guys, you ever think you're too bad to come to Jesus? You've messed it up too many times? You ever feel that way? Not good enough? Didn't keep the law enough? Too messed up? Hey, listen, I want to tell you, there's a beauty of this uh, passage if Jesus can say, Father, forgive them, to soldiers cramming nails through his wrists, if Jesus can say, you and me together in paradise to the thief on the cross, who will he not receive if you come to him for mercy? I mean, really, if he's, if he's reaching this far down on the barrel, right, who will he not receive if you come to him for mercy? He'll take anybody. Doesn't that give you good hope? We fit in. Can you see him? Not a fake king to be mocked, the savior king who stayed on the cross to bring sinners to himself. All right, last one for this morning. In verse 48, uh, Luke tells us the crowd had assembled for a spectacle. 
What does that what does that feel like to you? It's almost like this ugly circus, right? The super powerful, famous Jesus crucified. You go watch. You're appalled, but it's like it's like a terrible version of ancient daytime TV. You go watch. Oh, see the show. And yet, as they leave, they're they're changed. They're disappointed. They got way more than they bargained for. Look at look at verse forty four. Luke says, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So sixth hour is about noon, ninth hour is for three. So between noon to three, noon to three, what's it usually like in the day? Hot. And what was it like on that day? Dark. I'm not going to try to give you some scientific reason that the whatever aligned with the whatever. It was miraculously dark. All the Gospels say that. The crowds realize that. It's deep darkness in the middle of the day. How would you feel about that? How would you feel about that if you experienced that? It's a little ominous. It's a little dark. And it's very meaningful. You know, if you read through the Old Testament prophets, there's always this day of the Lord where God comes in judgment. And what is usually connected to the day of the Lord? Darkness. It's this oppressive, like, you've been caught red-handed and wrath is coming. And it's dark. There's no way out. I want to read you just one, one version of this from Amos chapter 8 because it, it gives me the chills. Amos chapter 8, verse 9. Look at what God says. On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down. When? It's hundreds of years before the Gospels. I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your, what? Feast into morning. What day is it as Jesus is being crucified? Passover. Your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like morning for an only son. And you start to put it together. Wrath has come, but it's not coming on the chief priests who delivered him up. It's not coming on Pilate. It's not coming on the soldiers. It's not coming on the thieves. It's like it's mourning for an only son who's taken on the wrath from 12 to 3 the only son of God. He's taking on the wrath. And you see what happens next. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. <laughs> Love this image. I think Matthew says it's torn from top to bottom, which would be tough because it was really tall and really thick. So what does that mean for it seems like God just went over to the curtain and went, Whoosh! We know the, the, the Holy of Holies represented like God's very presence. And you can't go in there, basically. You can't go in there because you've sinned too much. You've rebelled against him. You haven't loved him. You haven't loved your neighbor. You can't go in there. If you go in there, this doesn't work. You're going to die because he's too holy. And so even the high priest could only go in for a minute real quick with bells on his ankles in case he dies so we can pull him out with a rope because even he can't go in there. And yet, when Jesus dies, what does God do with the veil? The barrier's broken. You guys, this is an invitation. What does it say? 
Come on in. Come on in. Come on in. Verse 46, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. You know, it's amazing. I think it, I think it really made a mark on the soldiers. It's just a guess. But with crucifixion, you die slow, right? You can be up there for days. And so a lot of times they would break your legs to make it end, which is horrible. They smash your legs so that you can't push up and get air anymore. So you asphyxiate. But Jesus didn't die like that. How did Jesus die? He decided it was time to die. <laughs> I've done it. As he says in another gospel, it's finished. I'm done. Uh, death didn't beat Jesus. Jesus gave himself up. The work was done. The veil is torn. A way is made to come into the presence of God. And you know what? It's so amazing that Luke gives us our sermon summary from who? Look at verse 47. Now when the who? Centurion saw what had taken place. This is a pagan Roman soldier in charge of crucifixions. Uh, what's his character resume like? Uh, you know, how many master's degrees from seminary does he have? What has he done to earn salvation from a holy God? Nothing. And yet, oh, do you see Jesus' prayer coming true again? What does he say? When this centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Two things to know. Number one, that phrase in Luke, praised God, that always means you're recognizing God's salvation. So Luke has given you like, this is legitimate worship. He sees some of what Jesus is doing. And his declaration is the man is innocent, or in the Greek it really means righteous. And the reason Luke gives us that is what? The darkness tells you wrath. Jesus is taking the wrath, even though he's righteous, and the veil is torn in two. Which means as the righteous take on sin, Jesus takes on our sin, the sinful me and you can enjoy his righteousness. And it wasn't just he who believes. Look at what Matthew says in Matthew 27, 54. Matthew 27, 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said... Truly, this was the Son of God. So what are you supposed to see at the cross? Your substitute. That's what you're supposed to see. Your substitute. He was taking your place. He was wearing your sin so that you could have his righteousness, so that veil could be torn in two, so that you could come into the Father. You can come, do you realize this? You can go straight to the holy God of the universe as your father, even if you're a centurion, even if you're a thief, a murderer, a failure, an outcast, you can come straight in if you come through what Jesus has done on the cross. Can you see that? Let's sum it up. 
You know, Jesus prayed that people would see. Uh, and then you have this group of people who don't see. The religious leaders, what were they doing? Mocking him. The soldiers, what were they doing? Mocking him. And the thieves, what were they doing? Mocking him. But then, as the clock ticks, you get one thief who what? Sees. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Then you get some soldiers who see. This is the son of God. You know, we're not getting into it today, but as Jesus gets buried, somebody comes out of the woodwork, takes down the body, washes it. You know what his name is? Joseph of Arimathea. Guess what his job was? Religious leader. Out of the crowds that mocked him, some from each crowd, religious leaders, soldiers, thieves. A thief sees. Soldiers see. You mean God can even save religious leaders? A religious leader sees. Can you see? Do you see the cross? Do you see the one who's taking judgment for you so that you can escape final judgment? Do you see the king? who's better than anything, and, the, and life is all about being with him and being known by him? Do you see the substitution where he took your sin, gave you his righteousness, and brings you in to God? Can you see it? Um, the reason they saw it is because Jesus prayed for them. And if you see it, guess why? Jesus prayed for you. I hope you're seeing it. Because he goes, you guys, I want to finish with this. When you see him, that's how you become like him. You know that, right? You can't become like Jesus by following a list of rules. You become like Jesus by seeing Jesus and treasuring him. How are you going to forgive people you struggle to forgive? Forgive them! You know, is that what I should do? Just yell louder and louder? Forgive them! Do it! Is that, is, that, is that going to melt your heart to forgive anybody? You know how you become like Jesus? You're deeply moved that he forgave you. If you're having a hard time forgiving somebody, it's because you're not seeing the cross. You're not seeing it. Or Jesus said, In, Father, into your hands I, co I commit my spirit. How devoted was Jesus to the Father? We've been seeing this every week, right? Jesus, Jesus is praying in the garden. I don't want to go to the cross, but then what does he say? Father, your will be done. How do you get to where you're devoted to God like that? Try harder. See Jesus. See Jesus and his love for you, and you'll want to be devoted to him. You'll want to serve him. The way's been open, guys, through the cross. What should we do? Let's draw near. See Jesus. Draw near. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that uh, by your spirit, each one of us would see in new ways the cross and be moved, be changed. Jesus, we love you for your beauty, for your kindness, in praying for forgiveness on those even killing you, in changing the heart of thieves, of soldiers, even religious leaders. Lord, we want to see, uh, we want to know your love, we want to know what it's like to be brought near to the Father, and we pray more and more that um, 
Our hearts would be changed by you, melted by you, in love with you, and we would devote ourselves to you uh, because we see what you've done for us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.